0: Can you catch this, or match this? Check this direct to your spinal axis. Welcome back to Catch This, the Military Medicine Podcast. Today we're gonna wrap up our discussion on medicine and dynamic pressure environments as we move on to disparisms. You'll recall in the first three episodes, we dealt with Dalton's Law and Henry's Law, which led us to discussions about hypoxia and decompression sickness. Today, we're going to move on to a more in-depth discussion about Boyle's Law and some of the problems that that causes us in the medical context. So first of all, you'll recall that Boyle's Law stated that at constant temperature, the absolute pressure and the volume of gas are inversely proportional. This is akin to the balloon analogy. And we talked about it as we move from surface up into the atmosphere and the ambient pressure decreases, the volume of that balloon is going to expand. Whereas if we move down into the water column in the diving context, that pressure in the ambient environment is going to increase, and that's going to cause the size of the balloon to decrease. Well, our body contains a number of balloon-like structures, and if those structures are exposed to changing pressure environments, then we can expect a similar process to happen. Unfortunately, very much like the balloon, there is a limit to the elasticity of those spaces within our body. And when we reach those limits, we can expect damage to occur. That damage is called barotrauma, which results from the changes in the ambient pressure. What's needed to produce barotrauma is rigid walls in a gas-filled space, usually lined with a membrane that's enclosed within the body. And of course, an ambient pressure change is required. Now, one thing that throws a number of students off is understanding the problem of how an air-filled space inside of the body can be affected by pressure that's actually being exerted on the external surface of the body's tissue. And we get that answer from a fluid mechanics principle called Pascal's Law, or the principle of transmission of fluid pressure which states that pressure exerted anywhere in a confined, incompressible fluid is transmitted equally in all directions throughout the fluid. Now, since our body is mostly fluid, as pressure is being exerted externally, we would experience the same pressure on internal air-filled spaces, such as the bowel or sinuses. The important point to remember here is that if we can vent those rigid spaces we can prevent barotrauma but in the event that they're not properly vented we can expect trauma to occur. Now there are two types of barotrauma. The first is called a squeeze and the second is called a reverse squeeze. Now squeeze is is simply what it implies is that when we descend and the ambient pressure is increasing around us it's squeezing in on those tissues so that's generally how you're gonna hear it referred to in the operational setting is a squeeze. On the ascent however when the ambient pressure is decreasing normally that's returning back to a normal state, particularly when we're talking about the diving context. But in some cases, that expansion can cause what we might call as reverse squeeze and we'll give a, a couple of examples of that as we go through this one of the places to begin this discussion is in an understanding of the anatomy now of course you all know the anatomy so i'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing this but if you do need to take a moment go back and review the anatomy of the middle and inner ear the middle ear is one of those areas that is particularly susceptible to barotrauma so it's going to be the focus of part of our discussion today And the key point here is to remember that the tympanic membrane forms an enclosed membranous space inside of the ear. And if that space is not vented properly, we can end up with the right conditions for barotrauma. Let's start with the external ear. If we were to present a condition in which there was an obstruction introduced into the external auditory canal, we would expect to create a space in which we would not be able to ventilate, creating the conditions right for a squeeze. Now, some examples of how that might happen is if we have serum impaction, we have a tight wetsuit hood, earplugs, or pathologies such as osteoma or otitis externa which would prevent airflow from freely moving outside of that space inside the external auditory canal. So as we move down in the water or air column, assuming that we're ventilating the middle ear properly, we're going to create a condition in which we're increasing the ambient pressure both in the middle ear and in the external ear, causing pressure to be exerted on that space created by the obstruction. This in turn, of course, will lead to trauma to the external auditory canal, which results in pain. So one of the key bits of advice, of course, is that a scuba diver should never dive with earplugs. More common than external ear barrel trauma is that in the middle ear. This is the most common type of pressure-related injury and is very common even in experienced divers. The etiology is a blocked eustachian tube. So we're going to walk through this real quickly. The first thing to remember is that the eustachian tube connects the middle ear with the nasopharynx, allowing ambient air to travel in from the nasopharynx into the middle ear, providing for an opportunity to equalize those pressures. But in the operational context, the increased ambient pressure pushes in on the eustachian tube, creating a blockage, which prevents the air that's had an increased pressure in the nasopharynx from entering into the middle ear. Simultaneously, there's increased pressure being exerted on the tympanic membrane from the external auditory canal. Both of these result in pressure being exerted on the middle ear, creating pain. And if it isn't relieved by ventilation, ultimately, it will have to be relieved traumatically. Now, in most cases, equalization will occur passively on descent as the increased pressure inside the middle ear pushes through the eustachian tube, which forms a sort of funnel effect. But on the descent, those divers or aviators will have to actively equalize using the valsalva or frenzel maneuver and this becomes a very important part of initial training in those environments Now, as that vacuum forms in the middle ear it begins to traumatize the tissue in that area resulting in capillary leakage which can result in significant bleeding into the middle ear tympanic membrane rupture will occur between 100 and 500 millimeters of mercury differential pressure this pressure can be generated by very small changes in depth when we're in the water column, in particular. Now, another mechanism to create middle ear barotrauma is what we commonly call the Drager ear. Now, if we have an operator who is breathing oxygen at depth, such as a combat diver or as a tender in a recompression chamber who is breathing pure oxygen while at depth, what will happen is that the gas in his middle ear will be replaced with that oxygen that he's been breathing. Now, one of the differences between oxygen and nitrogen is that while nitrogen is inert, oxygen is not. It is metabolized and absorbed as time goes on. So once that operator comes out of that environment, he then goes home and the oxygen that's inside his ear slowly over time is absorbed. That causes a relative vacuum, which creates that same pressure differential that we described in the operational context. So what you'll see in a delayed setting is that that person can come in with the very same symptoms of middle ear squeeze that's resulted from oxygen being absorbed in the middle ear. This, of course, is remedied easily by regular equalization of the ear after the operator leaves the operational environment. The signs and symptoms of middle ear barotrauma are just what you might expect, fullness or pain. You might see some transient conductive hearing loss. This is primarily from tympanic membrane dysfunction, which may result from fluid inside the ear or just from the pressure that's inhibiting the movement of the tympanic membrane. In severe cases with high pressure differentials or unsuccessful equalization, the tympanic membrane may perforate. Now, this normally presents itself by pain relief. So in some cases, in fact, the operator may not even know that he perforated his membrane, believing in f- instead that he had successfully equalized his ear. The other thing that may happen is that you may get some involvement of in the inner ear organs, causing vertigo or tinnitus that normally is transient. Now, as you examine these patients clinically you're going to attempt to classify the degree of damage or trauma that's been caused to the tympanic membrane we use a classification called the teed system for ear squeeze this is a graded scale of severity ranging from zero which is normal to five where hemorrhage has completely filled the middle ear so if we look at grade one, what we're going to see is some vascular congestion of the pars flaccida, gumbo, and annulus. And this occurs at pressure differential of about 100 millimeters of mercury. Mild, resolves on its own, nothing uh, to worry about significantly and clinically. Grade two would be vascular congestion of the entire TM. So now we're going to see a red, angry tympanic membrane. This is occurring at slightly higher pressures, about 100 to 150 millimeters of mercury. Again, relatively mild and generally will resolve in the next 24 to 36 hours. T3 is starting to move into more severe hemorrhage within the tympanic membrane. We're now seeing hemorrhage that is still limited to the tympanic membrane itself. Moving into grade four, we now start to see fluid filling up the Middle ear. So we're having hemorrhage that is directly into the middle ear space with or without tympanic membrane rupture. So whether the rupture is there or not, if there's blood in the space, we'd call it T4. In T5, we have complete occupation of the middle ear space with hemorrhage. Now, an alternative way to describe this would be to use a simplified classification system, which will facilitate communication with other healthcare providers and avoid having to use the T classification, which you're likely to forget in the next few minutes and that would be to simply describe the tympanic membrane as normal, retracted, fluid-filled, blood-filled, or ruptured. That classification system helps us out when we move into the treatment. So the first and most obvious treatment is to restrict exposure until the problems in the ear are resolved. So if we have a mild case, T0 or 1, we're going to remove that operator from exposure for the next 8 to 72 hours monitoring them, and verifying that things have resolved before they return to uh, flying or diving duty. For moderate cases, T2 to 3 that time frame extends to one to eight days, and for severe, it may be up to six weeks. Again, the important thing is to make sure that the 10 membrane is healed properly before re-exposing them to uh, dynamic pressure environments. Now, the second important part of treatment is systemic and topical decongestants. So you'll see us normally placing these individuals on both Sudafed and Afrin for the next 24 to 72 hours, depending on how severe the condition is. Now, During that time, these decongestants are important f- to allow for more fluid to be evacuated from the middle ear, which speeds up the healing process. If the tympanic membrane is perforated, of course, we introduce a risk of infection into the middle ear. So you'll want to put that individual on antibiotics and remember to avoid any topicals if the tympanic membrane is perforated. So how do we prevent it? Well, the first thing is to avoid flying or diving with eustachian tube dysfunction. And in fact, when we select individuals for special duties in these environments, whether we're dealing with divers, air crew, parachutists, etc., one of the first things we want to do is verify in the clinical exam that those individuals, in fact, are able to move their tympanic membranes under their own power. Now, for those individuals that have ongoing eustachian tube dysfunction, they'll probably be disqualified from this duty, although it can be a little bit difficult, and sometimes they warrant a test in an altitude chamber to verify that that is, in fact, the case. Of course, the other common cause for station tube dysfunction is upper respiratory infection. So, so on a temporary basis, for those that have URIs or colds, should simply never dive or avoid the dynamic pressure environment. But in that case of a temporary illness and somebody absolutely has to dive or fly, the use of topical and systemic decongestants can be considered. Of course, we have to think about the risk of what may happen as the effects of those medications wears off. The other important thing operationally is to remind divers to stay ahead of the pressure changes not such a big issue in aviation because the pressure differential is so small and moves a lot slower. but in the diving environment the diver should equalize his ears before he begins to feel pain or pressure as he's descending in the water column all right let's move on now to reverse ear squeeze now this is not as common as the middle ear squeeze we've been discussing as you recall normally the middle ear will ventilate on its own on ascent but in some cases when this doesn't happen we can run into a condition that can, in fact, be fairly significant. So this will occur on ascent most dangerous due to the possibility of delayed or uncontrolled ascent. So in those cases where there may be an urgent ascent to the surface, the pressure differential may be changing so rapidly that the operator is unable to keep up with those. There may be some predisposing factors that lead to reverse ear squeeze even in a normal ascent, such as eustachian tube dysfunction, again, as a result of perhaps URI, for example, ear infection, allergies or or in some cases anatomic variation but normally those would have been weeded out by the time you're seeing established operator in the event that an individual is ascending uh... they should know this of course in advance that what they need to do is to stop the ascent, descend slightly, go ahead and go through their equalization maneuvers and then assume their ascent. Of course that's very similar to the advice we would give someone experiencing ear discomfort on the way down in the water column. And when the inner ear is traumatized by dynamic pressure changes, it can be clinically very significant. This occurs most commonly on descent, and generally it's going to begin very much like a middle ear squeeze. In fact, it may begin as a middle ear squeeze, so the first sign may be that pressure or pain that is associated with a common ear squeeze. If the operator then begins a series of forceful valsalva maneuvers, he can cause injury to his inner ear. Of course, it may also be caused by implosion or explosion, which should be fairly intuitive in our uh, current operational environment. And importantly, inner ear barotrauma may result in permanent injury. Now, as we said, the oval window and the round window provide windows into the inner ear. And if the pressure differential in the middle ear is great enough, we can produce enough force to traumatize and burst those membranes, causing a paralymph fistula to be formed. This can result in, of course, leakage of fluid out of those structures, uh, infection in the inner ear, and hemorrhage within the inner ear, all of which can cause very significant injury, which in some cases may be permanent. Symptoms associated with inner ear barotrauma are consistent with the functions of the organs involved. So if you think about what these organs do, you can predict what you might expect to see. So for example, if the cochlea is involved, you might expect to see hearing problems. Patients will often report tinnitus or actually in this case, they'll describe the this more as a roaring sensation rather than a simple ringing. You will likely see vertigo, in many cases very severe and usually persistent after removal from the operational environment, nystagmus, bubbling sensations in the ear, neurosensory hearing loss. And remember that on otoscopic exam, you will find middle ear barotrauma. So you, you obviously cannot do an external exam of the inner ear, so your suspicion needs to be raised in the event that you find these symptoms. And while we're on the subject of vertigo, let's go ahead and talk about a couple different forms of vertigo which may result in the operational environment. The first is caloric vertigo, which in fact is not barotrauma at all, but rather is a transient vertigo which is caused by differential and water temperature between the two tympanic membranes. Now, Of course, if the tympanic membrane ruptures in the face of barotrauma, we would expect to increase the risk of developing a caloric vertigo scenario. But on the other hand, this is a common condition that can be seen in simple surface swimming environments where the tympanic membrane in the left ear versus the right ear are getting different exposure to cold water. The other form of vertigo is alternobaric vertigo, which is caused by rapid pressure changes transmitted into the inner ear. It occurs most commonly on descent following forceful valve and usually lasts for seconds but may persist for several minutes, normally fairly mild and will resolve on its own. So how do we treat barotrauma? Well, of course, the first thing t- to do is to rule out arterial gas embolism and decompression sickness, which can cause these symptoms as well we're gonna place these patients on bed rest and have them avoid straining, even consider sedation to help them get through the period. It will be very uncomfortable, they will be very ill, and it will be difficult for them to do any normal daily activities anyway. As soon as possible, we're gonna get them to an otolaryngologist who will consider the need for surgical exploration, which is often needed, particularly if a fistula has been formed. And in the case that a fistula has been formed and doesn't resolve, it is permanently qualifying for divers or aviators as they will unlikely be able to expose themselves to this environment in the future now let's move on from the middle ear into some of the other balloon spaces that may occur in our body and one of the common places for squeezes to occur is in the sinuses now if you think about the frontal maxillary or ethmoidal sinuses for example these spaces normally are full of air but will ventilate on their own without any active participation from the individual but in some cases particularly with those predisposing factors such as infection like a a uri or sinusitis for example allergies or various anatomic variations that prevent equalization we might start to see the barotrauma occur now these will present with pain in the sinus area this is usually described as a very sharp pinpoint needle sort of sensation uh, located right over the sinus in the maxillary area you might see some dental pain other things that might happen is that you you might see blood forming in the mask As the trauma occurs, a blood is released from the sinuses and moves into the mass space. On exam, you would expect tenderness on percussion of those sinuses and transillumination changes. X-rays may be helpful as you may see changes there, but keep in mind that they may be confounded by the pre-existing conditions that were predisposing to the sinus squeeze in the first place. In some cases, you may need to do a CT or an MRI, or the ENTs may want to do a scope in order to verify the diagnosis. So treatment's fairly simple. Same as we do for middle ear squeezes, no diving, decongestions, observed for infections. They usually resolve on their own. We do need to consider what the predisposing conditions were that led to the sinus squeeze. In some cases, they may need surgical correction of anatomical defects, polyps, or mucus retention cysts, for example. Another space that a balloon may occur is in the teeth. Uh, This will occur on a center descent. It's usually associated with recent dental work. Uh, that produces an airspace inside of the tooth and as you ascend that airspace can expand so you'll, you'll more commonly see this in the aviation environment signs and symptoms include tooth pain maxillary pain in some severe cases a tooth or the filling within the tooth may actually pop out, which of course would lead to the relief of pain. So it may be difficult to sort out. The treatment's very straightforward. Simply uh, relieve the pain and let's get them over to the dentist and have them look at what happened and restore the work that may have been damaged in the process. Inside the abdomen, there's a number of spaces that are full of gas. Uh, abdominal bear trauma is very rare. Uh, it typically occurs only on ascent. but in the event that the operator exposed himself to a number of gas-producing events prior to the exposure, such as after antacids or high gas producing foods before diving he may run into some problems of the barotrauma. signs and symptoms include pain distension in the abdomen uh, in very severe cases you can see pneumoperitoneum but of course uh, not clinically significant in most cases you can stop the ascent vent the GI tract if possible and things will resolve on their own Now, as I mentioned, this is all very rare, but what is worth mentioning is that the greatest risk of abdominal barotrauma is probably due to incapacitation as a result of the alteration of the vasovagal response. Now, with any kind of trauma going on in the abdomen, one can potentially see a vasovagal response, which would lead to loss of consciousness, and this, of course, can be very operationally relevant. A much more operationally relevant condition is lung overexpansion injuries, and this is the big balloon inside of our chest. Now, in most cases, the lungs are very compliant, but, but as we ascend, remember that we're breathing a relatively high pressure of air ambient air and that air is filling up our lungs so in the event of a sense if we don't ventilate that space properly we can produce a trauma scenario where high pressure air inside the lungs is escaping into the pleuritic cavity causing a pneumothorax if that air then continues to increase it may in fact rupture through the pleura and produce a subcutaneous emphysema so air escaping into the mediastinum or into the skin area can cause air bubbles to form there that subcutaneous emphysema would be experienced as a bit of rice crispy sensation in the skin and the mediastinum uh you'll you can see widening of the mediastinum uh, but normally this will present with the patient complaining of a burning sensation or significant chest pain now down at the alveolar level the same dynamic can happen where high pressure air inside the alveolus can rupture through the capillary membrane and push air into the arterial system, causing an arterial gas embolism. Of course, air bubbles in the blood are not good and can move into any system, causing problems wherever they might go. For example, you might see bubbles occluding small arteries in the heart or in the spinal cord, or more commonly in the brain, which will lead to a stroke-like condition, which would mirror those symptoms that we see in cardiovascular accidents. These lung overexpansion expansion injuries are normally caused by holding their breath during ascent. And one of the cardinal rules of scuba diving, for example, is never hold your breath while scuba diving in order to prevent this. This is purely a function of Boyle's Law. As the balloon expands, ultimately the membranes pop and the air moves into spaces we don't want it. Predisposing factors include smoking and lung congestion, increasing the risk of lung overexpansion injury. Now specifically, air embolism, or AGE, is very important to the diving medical officer as it presents a very urgent and significant medical condition which must be responded to immediately. Air is entering the bloodstream again through rupture of the alveoli and pulmonary capillaries. Uh, Most commonly, it's going to result in cerebral symptoms as the bubble moves into the brain space. Signs and symptoms will be very similar to stroke, so we don't need to spend a lot of time explaining that. It's very intuitive. If a bubble is blocking blood flow in the brain, you can predict what the symptoms may be, recognizing that those symptoms are going to be dictated by precisely where the bubble is formed. You can see dizziness, confusion, shock paralysis, personality changes, unconsciousness, etc. Of course, it's going to vary again based on where the bubble is. The treatment in this case is going to be immediate oxygen and then ultimately these patients are absolutely going to need recompression and you need to get them to a chamber. Normally we'll use table six alpha out of the U.S. Navy dive manual. For treatment of arterial gas embolism but once again the first aid is very important because it's going to take you a while to get them to the chamber so you only have that one opportunity to maybe use that trendelenburg position and of course putting oxygen on there may make a big difference in the long run most of you are going to be very familiar with pneumothorax this is air escaping from the lung into pearl space pressure increasing collapsing the 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 lung but just to remind you this can happen as a a pulmonary overinflation syndrome uh, signs and symptoms be shortness of breath absent lung sounds deviated trachea and chest pain you you should know all this by now from your study of title combat casualty care etc treatment of course would include oxygen and needle decompression of the chest and a followed up by a chest tube as soon as practical. The other place that air can uh, escape into would be the mediastinum and the sub-Q, as we talked about forming emphysema in that area. This is uh, escaped air accumulating in the soft tissues. Normally we talk about subcutaneous emphysema causing crepitus or Rice crispy. Uh, it can also result in a voice change where you see kind of a, a, often a high-pitched or just a strange quality to the voice. Mediastinal emphysema can lead to a shortness of breath or a sensation of heartburn, chest pain, like we talked about with the chokes, treatment here is just simply oxygen. Normally this is mild and does not need recompression. So uh, summarizing what we talked about quite a bit here, but all related to Boyle's Law, one of the biggest things to remember as divers or as aviators in this environment would be to equalize early and often and begin equalizing immediately on descent. Normally we recommend that you start your first equalization before you ever feel any pressure. Don't wait until there's any discomfort because if the individual's waiting until it's pain, it's gonna be hard to equalize. So in that event, we say, well ascend back up to where it doesn't hurt go ahead and equalize to where you're successful and then continue to descend down Uh, that's easy for the diver but in the airplane that can sometimes be a little bit more difficult because you can't control your own ascent as you're flying Anytime an operator is uh, experiencing a cold or significant allergies, he should avoid exposure to the pressure environment and avoid any lengthy or forceful Valsalva in order to avoid ground window rupture. Those are the scenarios that usually get people in trouble in that case. So if it's not working, it's probably time to abort the dive. Consult an ENT if any ear barotrauma is suspected and, of course, avoid any earplugs or tight-fitting hooks. Well, that concludes our four-part series on medicine and, and dynamic pressure environments. We've covered a wide spectrum of issues that result from Henry. Daltons and Boyle's Law. We've only scratched the surface. There's plenty more here. So for those of you that may be interested in this type of material, you may choose to serve a tour as a diving medical officer or as a flight surgeon, or perhaps you may even pursue a career in aerospace medicine. And for those of you, uh, there's plenty of information out there. And certainly we're happy to answer those questions for you here at the Uniformed Services Military Emergency Medicine Department. So thanks for joining us. I'm Justin Woodson. Keep reaching for excellence. and We'll see you next time on Catch This.